The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our subject is living in the light of Christ's return and the title of the message and the message has been the same for a few weeks now this is part number seven in our series of the great and terrible day of the Lord and in our text verses in first Thessalonians chapter five the apostle Paul wrote but of the times and of the seasons brethren ye have no need that I write unto you For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Paul used this phrase, the day of the Lord. And that's an Old Testament reference to the end times frequently used by the prophets to describe God's judgment upon the world. And it includes many catastrophic events. It is a judgment that comes swiftly and progressively so that the apostle compares it to a woman who is in labor pains. Now, Paul didn't explain all of the events that would happen in that day. He didn't elaborate on it. Uh, He didn't talk to, to us here about the birth pangs and the many different events that will happen in that day because he'd already taught the Thessalonians on this subject. He did that when he organized the church uh, sometime earlier. And his point here is that because God will judge the world, we ought to live in the encouragement of that knowledge to be righteous and holy people. And the rest of this chapter will expand on that theme, the way we are to live And he shows us here that the world is unaware, the world is unconcerned about the end. They believe that things will continue as they are, or at least that the end of the earth is thousands and thousands of years away, brought about by things like climate change or nuclear wars or some other accident of man. But as Christians, we know better. We know that the end of the world is a fixed day. It will come according to God's timetable. It's God who will end the world. And he will do it in a sudden cataclysmic event that's orchestrated by his divine hand. So we know that God plans to end the world. And armed with that knowledge, the Bible tells us that we are to be prepared for the return of Christ. Now, as I said, Paul was very brief on the subject here. There's only one verse that's dedicated to its outcome He says that the world says peace and safety, but then sudden destruction comes upon them like a thief in the night. In our study, we haven't been as brief as Paul. Instead, we've gone on to look at other scriptures that describe this, the birth pangs, all these awful events that will come at the end. And so in the progression of this study, we've talked about uh, these great catastrophes. We've, We've discussed the great apostasy that will come upon the world. We've looked at the Antichrist. We've talked about tribulation. We've discussed the persecution of Israel. And these are all precursors that prepare the world for the inception of the, of the great kingdom that is about to come, the glorious kingdom of God on earth. 
And the final event is the climactic event. That event is the return of Jesus Christ. Now the return of the king is the outstanding event that begins the golden age. It's a, a wonderful promise that was given to Israel thousands of years ago. The prophets spoke of it. As I mentioned a moment ago, Isaiah wrote about it. The last section of his prophecy that we're reading in the congregational reading is all about this coming kingdom of Christ. Ezekiel likewise wrote of it, and he concentrated mostly on the worship of the millennial kingdom and talked about a temple that would be built in those days. Zechariah also speaks of Christ's return. And as you study the Word of God, you'll find that nearly all of the Old Testament prophets had something to add to give us some description or tell us something about this time that will come. And when Christ comes, he will fight one devastating battle that will end in Satan's defeat. The forces of evil angels and wicked men will be destroyed. Satan and his demons will be chained in the abyss for the duration of Christ's kingdom. Now most of you are familiar with the battle that ends uh, this world as we know it now and ushers in the coming kingdom. You know it as the battle of Armageddon. And if you haven't heard of that by reading scripture, then certainly you've heard of it in fancy books, fancy uh, fantasy books that have been written about it. There was a movie that came out a few years ago that was about an asteroid that uh, was on a collision course with the earth and they called this movie Armageddon. But I can assure you that Armageddon is not about asteroids. This is the battle for the world. It will be a battle for the world. It's both a literal battle and a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle as well. It's a combination of physical fighting and spiritual fighting between the heavenly host of God and the evil forces of darkness. Now this message of the great and terrible day of the Lord is the gruesome nature of the defeat of the world's armies. It is not going to be pleasant. The Word of God describes how it will leave behind heaps of dead bodies that become food of rotting flesh for birds and beasts. It is an awful day. But it results in great blessedness because out of this, by, uh, this battle will come a world like no one has ever seen. It's a utopia of a Christian kingdom that covers the earth as waters that cover the sea. I'm sure you talk to people today and you say, there is a utopia coming and it's going to be a Christian kingdom. Well, they don't think that's utopia. They're not looking for that kind of a kingdom to come. But that's what the Bible describes. A kingdom of Jesus Christ that will be extensive over every square inch of this earth. And it will last for ten jubilant centuries. And it will be a world where evil is nearly non-existent. Now, in that day... One of the prophecies that you recognize from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 will be realized. Now that's a prophecy that we read most often at Christmas. But Christmas is only a small part of the prophecy. The kingdom of Christ is also there. You're familiar. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Unto us a child is born. That's... Christmas. 
That's the first advent. But the rest of the prophecy is still in the future. It's the kingdom of Christ that's yet to come when the government across the entire world would be God's and God's alone. It will rest upon the authority of Jesus Christ and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. His kingdom, the word of God says, will be established upon the throne of David in judgment and in justice. And that's the kingdom that we want to talk about. The next messages are about the kingdom of Christ. A wonderful promise that the world looks forward to. Now the question about the kingdom, though, that kind of looms over any study of it, would be this. Is this kingdom literal? Is it a real kingdom? Will, will there be a time on earth that is like this when there will be perfect peace and harmony? Is it a real kingdom? And the answer to that question is yes. The, the Bible's descriptions of these things are not metaphors. They're not to be spiritualized to make the kingdom symbolic or ethereal. No, this is a real kingdom with a real king, with a real government, with real subjects. Now, the title of our message at this point really doesn't seem to be fitting. We're going to talk about this great millennial kingdom. And the title of the message is The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. That doesn't seem to fit. But it is terrible in the way that it comes in, that is the battle of Armageddon that precedes it. It's terrible in the way that it goes out, and that's when God ends this world in a great conflagration, fire falls down from heaven to burn it up. But in between, for 1,000 years, there is perfect peace across the world. It is 10 centuries of prosperity. It's 10 centuries of glorious living. 10 centuries of worship that you can only imagine. 10 centuries that's more magnificent than your mind can conceive. And then there is an eternity that comes out of it. An eternity with the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem where we as the people of God gather around the throne of God. Now, if you'll take your Bibles, and we're going to change text here and go to Revelation chapter 20. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 20, we've looked at night, chapter 19, which is the return of the king. That was the discussion of part five of our outline. So we'll just put that up for you right quickly. Uh, point number five of this outline is the climax of the day, the climax of the day of the Lord. And the return in the climax, that is the high point, that's letter A on your listening sheet, the return of the king. And I'm giving you these earlier reference points very quickly just to, just to get us oriented back into the message. Chapter 19 was about the return of the king. The next comes the retribution of the king. The retribution is God's revenge upon the wickedness of the world. And then there is thirdly the rule of the king. Verse 15 in chapter 19 says the king will rule with a rod of iron. And so that, that scripture locates us in the millennium with a description of the way that Christ will rule unbelievers. You see, the kingdom will be a mixture of believers and unbelievers. And unbelievers must be ruled in a different way than believers. Now, unbelievers must be ruled by force. Because there is no unbeliever who willingly submits to the rule of Christ. Human Human minds, humans are hostile against God. There is no willingness to serve Christ. It will be no different then than it is now. No one naturally wants to serve God. No one naturally wants to bow before Jesus Christ and serve him. So that's the tough part of the kingdom. 
people are unwilling to surrender to Christ. Lost people aren't willing. And, and if they won't do it under the perfect government that exists of utopia in that time, why would they do it now when Satan is loosed? Uh, the scriptures repeatedly show us this, that the human heart will not turn to God until God does something, works in him first. So this kingdom that comes is not promised to be one of fun and games for unbelievers. This is not a kingdom where God lets everyone go to do as they please and live as they please. No, this is a kingdom with a righteous government that has a righteous mandate of obedience. Now here in Revelation 20, it tells us about it. We're going to leave the other parts of it for now and go here to Revelation 20 to talk about the time between Armageddon and the conflagration that destroys the world. And in between those two times, there is this glorious kingdom of Christ, a literal kingdom that will last for 1,000 years. Revelation 20, verse number 1. I saw, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, that is the Antichrist, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now at this point it's necessary for us to change our outline. We have a subsection of point number five, the climax, and it covers the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. Now you'll pardon me for this informality of, of outlining, because we're going to defy English teachers now, and we're going to change things. We're going to defy the outline gods. Uh, English teachers will wrap your knuckles if you try this, if you're still in school. So don't do it. Don't do this. And thank God that there won't be English teachers in heaven or in the millennial kingdom. But so here, here comes the, the first part, the change that we need to make. And that is, number one, is the resplendent millennium. The resplendent millennium. So we have the return of the king. We have the retribution of the king, we have the rule of the king, and now we're going to extend our discussion into the millennial kingdom. And I want you to notice first that it is a kingdom of, thou of a thousand years. And we've been asserting that, haven't we? That's one of our points that we've made. There isn't an Old Testament text that tells us how long the kingdom will last, but here in Revelation chapter 20, we have it in black and white, in verses 1 through 7, and we didn't read verse 7, but verses 1 through 7, six times we're given the figure of 1,000 years. But amazingly, there are people who interpret the Bible differently, and they say, well, the kingdom is not actually literal. And they look at this very specific number that's stated seven times, and they say, no, that's just a figurative number, and all that it stands for is that 
the kingdom is going to be a really long time. Not a thousand years, but just a really long time. And of course they can't stick to a thousand year kingdom because in spiritualizing it, they say the kingdom is already here. That right now you are living in the kingdom of Christ. And it began way back when, when Jesus arose from the dead and it will continue until the day that Jesus comes back. And so, knowing that it's now been 2,000 years since Christ arose from the dead, they would have to throw out the figure of 1,000 years because that just doesn't match. Well, we want to be very clear about this, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is real. Six times it says 1,000 years, and I believe that it means 1,000 years. If not... Then we look at the text and we can say that sin is not really sin. That's a metaphor. Salvation is not really salvation. The devil that it speaks of here is not really the devil. The pit that he's cast into is not really a pit. The thrones that are spoken of are not really thrones. None of that is literal. That's what they would say. But I prefer a Bible that is literal rather than one that is fantasy. And so we take the scriptures and say... This is a real kingdom that Christ is going to bring to the earth. And I deduce this by looking at the Old Testament and I see all the details that are given there. I read Isaiah that we've been reading. I read Daniel. I read Ezekiel. And I see all of these precise details that are given. There's a millennial temple in Ezekiel that's given with very precise measurements. And I can't see as I read that anything other than a literal temple. The prophets spoke of a kingdom as if it is a literal reality. God promised it to Israel and they expected it. So it is a kingdom of 1,000 years. That, of course, is where we get the term millennial. Millennium, that is a a Latin term for 1,000 years. Sometimes you'll hear that our belief is kiliistic. That comes from the Greek word for 1,000 years, kilia. So sometimes you'll hear that, that we have a kiliistic belief. But we do, in fact, believe that the kingdom will last for 1,000 years, a literal kingdom. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we want to discuss. The kingdom that is filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. What is the effect of such a kingdom upon the earth? And from our experience... You and I, being Christians, there is no way that we can believe, I don't think, that this utopic kingdom that the Bible talks about is here yet. It's still future. It's still coming. We're not living in these days now. We are going to see a literal kingdom. Now, among many Old Testament prophecies of this kingdom, there is a wonderful text in the book of Daniel. Now, I'm not going to go there to read it to you, but... If you want to read some interesting material, pick up the book of Daniel and just go from the beginning to the end of it. But there's a story in the book of Daniel. Uh, You may be familiar with a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and the interpretation of this dream that was given by Daniel. And in this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant image, a large image that had a head of gold. It had breast and arms of silver and a belly and thighs of brass It had legs of feet that were mixed with iron and clay. Daniel interpreted that dream for the king and said, King, this is a succession of kingdoms. 
The head of gold is a kingdom. The breast and the arms of silver are a successive kingdom. Then another kingdom comes, and that represented, is represented by the belly and thighs of brass. And then yet another kingdom, the legs and feet that are mixed iron and clay. So Daniel interpreted this dream to be a succession of the world's great kingdoms. And in his dream, he also saw a stone that was cut out of the mountains. And this great stone rolled down and it crushed this image and broke it to pieces. The text describes it as a stone that was not carved with human hands. And when this stone rolled down and crushed this image, it grew into a huge mountain that filled the earth. Now that stone is Jesus Christ and the mountain is the millennial kingdom. Listen for a moment to Daniel 2 verse 44. And in the days of these kings... Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? That is, all these kingdoms represented by the image. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now do you see, Daniel says God is going to set up a kingdom that will consume all other kingdoms And the Bible is remarkably consistent about this from that little prophecy in the practically unknown book of Habakkuk to the well-known prophecy that's in the book of Daniel to an even more well-known prophecy in the book of Isaiah. There's information about this kingdom of Christ that comes to earth and what the earth will look like. What will time in this kingdom be like? What will the earth be like? Resplendent. That's the word we use, resplendent. That word means with glory, having great beauty and splendor. Sometimes the millennium is referred to as the golden age. And if I use that term, almost everybody understands that there's this prospect out there. People have heard of this and they understand when you say golden age, you're talking about that utopia that we just mentioned that's coming somewhere out there in the future. And they recognize you're not talking about something that is past because the world has never seen it. But this is a time that all the world's cultures look forward to, a time in the future. Now, interestingly, a golden age was part of the expectation of ancient cultures. W.A. Criswell wrote, It is found in the literature of all the families of the world. The beginning of that vision is lost in the dim artifacts of the past. We find it recurring again and again in the literature of the ancient Egyptians, of the ancient Babylonians and Chaldeans, of the ancient Persians and Medes, of the Greeks and of the Romans. And it's interesting in what Criswell wrote there because all of those ancient cultures knew about this and all of those cultures were represented in that golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. All of these kingdoms will be crushed by that stone that rolls down the mountain. Well, another question that we would have is how did these ancient cultures get this information? Why did they know this? They, they didn't read the Bible. They, did, they didn't know about it. How, how did they know it? Well, I don't really have any special insight that Criswell didn't have and what other great Bible teachers didn't have. But I do know that just seven generations from Adam, way back there, seven generations from Adam, Enoch prophesied that there would be a coming kingdom. He said, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And I can surely believe 
that Enoch also explained and said, why is the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints? Well, a question then also that I would ask, how did that information get to others? Was it Noah that preserved this prophecy? Did he pass it along to the eight souls that were saved with him in the ark? And these are the people that repopulated the earth, and they're the ones that spread this story to the rest of the nations of the world? Noah's only four generations from Enoch. So common knowledge of the golden age, that can't happen by accident. Well, what will this golden age be like? What happens to the world when Jesus Christ comes to reign? And before I answer that question, I would say there is no one like Jesus Christ. There is no one in all the religions of the world who is like Jesus Christ. There is no religion that has a God who is capable of doing what our God does. And the reason is because there is no God but our God. He is Jesus Christ. So we stand on that truth. The rest of the world's religions are not equal with ours because they don't have a real God. You know, often you'll see bumper stickers that show the symbols of the world's great religions. And Christianity is one of those symbols. You see the cross with all these other symbols of the other religions. And the message that comes at the end of the bumper sticker is this. Coexist. Coexist. Now, I, I confess that bumper sticker theology is about as deep as most people go. And uh, I can tell you, Christianity and other religions cannot coexist. It will not coexist. In fact, God intends that his worship would destroy the worship of all other religions. And that Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. And I can tell you that it's best for you to be on this side of that, the right side of that, right now. Because Jesus Christ is the stone that will come and crush all kingdoms and all religions. So if you have one of those bumper stickers on your car, that's not just a bad idea. That's eternal doom. Because the future is the kingdom of Christ. And right now, this is the time to repent one of these days, the church age will be over. Now is the time for people to repent and come to Jesus Christ. Because when this time is over, opportunities to come to Christ will be practically non-existent. So the end of this age is destruction, as Paul says in this text. The stone will roll down the mountain. It will cut down the kingdoms of the world. It will become its own mountain that fills all of the earth. So don't think it's less than a real kingdom. It is a kingdom that will change the world both physically and spiritually. Now what I want to talk to you about today, and I don't have time to go into it very far, we're already getting late, is I want to talk to you about some physical changes. I'm only going to deal with one. After Mother's Day we'll come back and we'll talk about some more. But there are physical changes that will take place in this kingdom. The first is that there will be a different earth topography. In the coming kingdom... The physical features of the world will be different. Now, maybe you didn't know, but the world has already gone through two major revisions. That is, this earth has gone through two major revisions. The first was at creation. God created the earth, and the Bible says he created it without form, and it was void. And so the earth had no physical features like oceans and dry land. There were no certain topographical features and then out of this void, the Word of God says that God made the dry land appear. 
And then there were oceans that were confined by the land. And it says that there were waters above the earth. That was in the form of vapor. And that's in the atmosphere. And then you have the waters that are on the earth in the form of the oceans and waters beneath the earth. That's at the very beginning. Then the second revision came when God destroyed the world by a flood. And before the flood, the earth's topography was different than it is now. The Bible describes how the subterranean fountains of the world were broken up and water vapor that was above the earth was released and all of this water inundated the entire world and the world was in a great deluge of the flood. And from the breakup of the subterranean, the land heaved upward to create mountain ranges. The continents were formed as they are now. It's impossible for you to locate the Garden of Eden on a map because the topography of that time no longer exists. And then just before the millennial come, millennial kingdom begins, remarkable changes will happen on this earth again. Now you have your Bibles open to Revelation. If you'll just turn to the sixth chapter, uh, we read this weeks ago in speaking of the birth pangs of tribulation, but there are other changes that happen. And if you look in Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse number 12, it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell under the earth. Now that is talking about meteorites and so on, fell from the, to the earth, even as the fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every island, every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now there you see mountains and islands are moved out of their places. I know people today are very much afraid of climate change. They're afraid of melting polar ice caps and the rays of ocean levels. Cities will be underwater, they say. Look at chapter 8, verse number 8 for a minute. Chapter 8, verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. You know, scientists right now are, are worried about this great ice shelf that's breaking off from Antarctica. And they say when that's done and it, gets, it begins to melt and the, the oceans of the world will begin to rise... Well, Revelation is talking about such a time here. But imagine that a great mountain is cast into the sea and the displacement of water that's in the oceans that will take place. How much will that cause the oceans to rise? Imagine how multiple earthquakes around the world will change the landscape that you see. Now, if you'll turn to chapter 16 of Revelation, there's another hint here about it. In the 18th through 20th verses, Revelation 16 and there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. Now there have been many earthquakes across the world. Have, and there's many in our time and of course before. No one has seen an earthquake like this one. Verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Cities across the world fall. Ocean levels will rise, 
And that rise is not a few inches climbing up on the Embarcadero, but there are whole cities that fall by floods and earthquakes. I don't think Christians will be too sad to see the left coast fall and all the cities there, or the other side of the country, the blue side on the right side. We probably won't be too worried about that. But here it speaks of mountains that are leveled, islands that are sunk, and so the world will look very much different in the millennium. It's God's world, and what he's doing is making it fit. He's just shaping it up, making it ready for his kingdom. There's a purpose in all of this, and God doing it this way. And let me show you a little bit of that. Uh, this prophecy is in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to go there. And, and it has a, a double fulfillment, and you'll recognize this because... Uh, You've heard it many times before. It's interesting, especially if you put it into its proper perspective. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now those of you that are Bible students, you'll recognize this as the prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist. That he was the voice of the one who, uh, crying in the wilderness. He's the one who prepared the way for the ministry of Christ when he came. He was the harbinger of Jesus Christ. He proceeded Jesus Christ to say, the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, be ready to receive him. But did you know this, that this prophecy in Isaiah is much more forward-looking than just the first advent of Christ? Now you say, why is that? Well, because in the Old Testament, the prophets didn't predict the church age. They didn't see the church age as a separate time, a now 2,000-year period between uh, the first and second advents, but as they prophesied, they saw all this future time as one time, and that's why Isaiah's prophecy is more direct towards the millennial kingdom. Isaiah's prophecy says, make a highway in the desert for our God. Smooth out the rough places, eliminate the curves, make a straight highway for the king. Tear down the mountains and lift up the valleys. Now in those days when a king went to visit his subject in the far-off reaches of his kingdom... Many times there was a new road that was made. A straight and level road was made so the king would ride in on a smooth road. It wouldn't jostle his carriage. There weren't curves in it. And this prophecy that, that, that matches things in those times fits perfectly with the millennial reign of Christ. In his reign, mountains are literally leveled. The rough places are smoothed out. Physically and spiritually it's done. Physically it's the topography. And this change of topography in the world enhances the wealth and supply of the new kingdom. And it may be that Jerusalem that now stands at a high elevation will be pushed even higher. The temple mount with its new temple where uh, uh, Ezekiel talks about it being built and where Christ will reign. That may even become the highest point on this earth. That Everest is pushed down, it's brought down, and Mount Moriah is pushed up. And so the king will rule in this place that's visible for miles around. Now let me show you a change in the topography of Jerusalem. If you'll turn to Zechariah 14, 
in the Old Testament, and this is an easy one for you to find, Zechariah 14. Zechariah comes just before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. So you find Malachi, just back up two or three pages, and you'll come to chapter 14 in Zechariah. So let's look what happens when Jesus returns. When he left, when he left this world, he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and he will come back to the Mount of Olives. This passage begins with the battle of Armageddon and the return of the king. Zechariah writes in verse number 2 of 14, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. The Mount of Olives will cleave. That means it will split. It will split in two. Half the mountain moves to the west, half of it moves to the east, and in between there is this very great valley. Now, reading in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he speaks of a massive temple that will be built. And the temple that is proposed is far too big to fit on the Temple Mount now as it exists in Jerusalem. This temple that we built can't fit on that temple platform. So this new platform that is created by the split in the mountain will well accommodate the size of this new millennial temple. Now when people read things like this and talk about how big the temple is, they say, well, that's not going to work. That can't happen. God is going to make it happen. And what does it take? It takes a change of topography. The world will look very much different then than it does now. Dr. Henry Morris has some interesting comments on the changes in his book, The Revelation Record. Dr. Morris was a great Bible-believing scientist. I can't say that he knew more than the Bible knows, but he does give some helpful insight in the way to uh, imagine these scenes that are in Revelation. Let's read for just a moment concerning changes of topography. He says, The violent earthquakes and upheavals will have leveled all the polluted cities of the sinful world, the better to facilitate the erection of new, clean, peaceful communities at the beginning of the millennium. These great land movements will also have eliminated the great mountain ranges and islands of the world, filling up the ocean depths and restoring gently, globally habitable topography and geography over all the world, as it had been in the antediluvian age, that is the age before the flood, before the cataclysmic upheavals of the great deluge. As Isaiah the prophet had foretold, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. I don't know if Henry Morris was right. His comments are plausible. I do know Revelation speaks of great cataclysmic events that will change the world. And Morris envisioned a world with the land masses pushed upward, sea levels are lower in comparison, 
and that provides a leveling of the landscape without the encroachment of the oceans. Now, if you think that climate change is a problem, you set your sights too low. If you worry about things, you need to worry about this. Start thinking about a whole different world. A world that is made different, but the way to get there is extremely hard. The way to get there is filled with fighting and bloodshed. The path that this world must take to see a utopic world doesn't come without pain and suffering. But always the Bible says, pain and suffering yields a peaceable reward. The pain and suffering that you go through for Christ always yields a peaceable reward. And the pain and suffering that the world goes through to bring in this kingdom, it will result in a world like no one has ever seen. Now the lost don't understand that. You and I do as Christians. I hope you understand how much better it will be to have King Jesus ruling the entire world. The lost don't understand that. Now they'll, they'll see the benefits of it. They'll see, oh, you know, this is a great place to live. There's plenty of jobs. Uh, the immediate need for them is that it fills their bellies. But sadly, their souls are not saved. And so Paul is telling us here that destruction will come upon them. The great and terrible day that ends the millennial kingdom brings destruction upon them. Now, I, I would like to go on and tell you more today, but I'm going to stop here. And then next time, we're going to talk about other changes. There's a different topography that helps facilitate another interesting change that happens in the millennium. But we're going to close here. And, and I just want to remind you of this, that Christ is coming. We don't know when, but he is coming. All the way back to Adam going forward into the prophecies of the Old Testament, reading Revelation in the New, this message is always the same. You must be prepared for Jesus to come. Amos, another great prophet, said, Prepare to meet thy God. Why? Because either you will be swept up into the glory of the millennial kingdom or you'll be swept away in the destruction of the earth. Which will it be? Well, it depends on what you do today. It depends on what you do in your lifetime. Do you believe? Have you repented of your sins? Is Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? And let me say this, that whether you like it or not, He does rule you. He is your Lord, whether you know it or not, the question is, is he your Savior? Have you been saved by him? Do you believe in him? That, my friends, is the key to everlasting life or everlasting destruction. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Trust him today. That's what the Bible tells all of us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the study that we've had today, looking into your scriptures and understanding by the word of God that Jesus is coming. Lord, we pray that you would prepare the hearts of people. And the only way they can be prepared is by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The other side of this is utter destruction. There is no happiness, there is no kingdom, there is no eternal life without knowing Jesus Christ. Your word tells us that ultimately it ends in the destruction of a place called hell. So we must warn people today to turn from that, to put their faith in Christ, be saved today. That's always the message of your divine holy word. 
So, Lord, we do pray that you would open hearts to your gospel in this very hour, that people will come to you in salvation, trusting Jesus Christ and his blood to cover all of their sins. And we ask this in the name of our great Lord and Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.